theyeshiva.net. I just want to begin by expressing condolences to one of the pillars of our shir, Mrs. Gitti Klein, on the loss of her mother. I know she's not here now, sitting shiva, but I did want to use the opportunity to express my, our heartfelt condolences to her and, of course, the entire mishpacha and community. Today's class is dedicated by Mehran Javarian. And Mehran says it's in memory of my father, Bashi ben Mashala. Back in the days, he was a physician in Iran who would help all sorts of people without expectations. And even though I left him as a teenager, he already had instilled deep values in me terms of a direction and a goal to follow. So thank you, Mehran, and thank you for your gracious friendship and partnership and dedication. And a good year to you and to your entire family and to all of our people and to all good people. Everybody knows the story of Chana that we recite, we repeat in the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah. The Haftarah of the first day of Rosh Hashanah tells that story in the beginning of Shmuel where Elkanah had two wives, Pnina and Chana. Pnina had numerous children, Luchana and Chana did not have a child. And her husband Elkanah would go with the family each year to Shiloh. Shiloh was then the location in Eretz Yisrael where the Mishkan was, where the sanctuary was. This is, of course, before the Beis HaMikdash was built. And he would go up there. He would go there for Pesach and for Shavuos, for Sukkot, for Yamam Tovim, different occasions. And the Haftarah tells the famous story how one year Chana <laughs> seemed extremely bitter, extremely hurt, extremely in pain. And she goes to the Mishkan, she goes into the Mishkan, and she's davening there. Eli, who is the high priest, the Kayin Gadol, considers her, he looks at her and he thinks she's intoxicated. He's watching her pray and he thinks that she's inebriated and he chastises her. How long are you going to drink? You got to join the 12-step program. Got to open a chapter of AA where you live. He really lets her have it. And Chana corrects him and says, you miss, you're misreading the situation. I'm not a drunkard woman. I'm a woman who's hurt, who is in pain. And I, I'm pouring out, I poured out my soul to Hashem. Eli then blesses her and says, may God fulfill your request. Indeed, she goes home. She conceives, she has, gives birth to her son, her little baby who she named Shmuel. Ultimately, she would bring him back to the Mishkan. He would remain with Eli. He would grow up there and he would become Shmuel Hanavi, the greatest prophet among the Jewish people. The Gemara says, it says in Tehillim, Moshe v'aren b'choy hanav, or Shmuel b'koyre shmoy, that Shmuel was shakul k'neged Moshe v'aren. He was equivalent to Moshe and Aaron in his greatness and his righteousness, even though when it comes to the prophecy, it says, like come navi k'moshe, there was no prophet like Moshe. But in some areas, Chazal Seishmol was the equivalent of Moshe and Aaron together. This was the son of Chana. It was, I think, two years ago before Rosh Hashanah, we had a class here, 
and we explored the question of how can Eli make such an error, even if he wasn't a kind God, even if he was just, you know, a regular man from the street, to be able to misread a situation so dramatically from one extreme to another extreme, accusing her of uh, consuming large quantities of alcohol instead of reading the situation of what this was about. Now, even though Hannah corrected her, and Eli, of course, retracted his words, but just to understand the story. And we delved in to one dimension, incredible explanation of what Eli really meant when he spoke about intoxication, not alcoholic intoxication, but a different type of intoxication. We discussed how people daven, what we daven for, etc. Today, that if you want to watch, that was a very interesting share, actually. It was a very interesting topic. And uh, some very interesting comments from the people as well. That was two years ago. You could watch it on the yeshiva.net if you go to Rosh Hashanah. But today I want to address a different, also fascinating angle about that story. And that is the Gemara in Meseches Brachas, page 31, Tractate Brachas, page 31, quotes Reb Hamnuna. Reb Hamnuna says that some of the most fundamental halachas about davening we learn from Tfilas Chana, how Chana prayed. That's what the Gemara's language in Aramaic is, Some of the most important, fundamental, vital, powerful laws about prayer, we learn from the Tfilah of Chana. And he goes through, he goes through the story of how the Tanakh describes the posture of Chana, the state of mind of Chana, the way in which Chana Davin, all of these seen as paradigms. Not just Chana did it, but these actually become law. It's fascinating. They become encoded in Jewish law in the Shulchan Aruch about how one ought to Davin or not to Davin. A few of the examples that he quotes, he says, you take a look at the story, it says, V'chana hi medaberes al-liba. Literally means Chana spoke to her heart, or spoke on her heart, or spoke with her heart. And this is the source. Davening is not about words. I could say the words robotically. The primary element of davening is the heart. Intent, intent, meditation, mindfulness, being focused, being emotionally present, as we call it today. That's what we learn from Chana. It's not an exercise in words. There are words we say, of course. But the primary element is that emotional presence. Chana was emotionally there. She spoke, she spoke with her heart. The story continues. Her lips were moving. Her lips were moving. From this he learns that the mispala, the one who davens and says the words, he or she should actually articulate the words with their lips. You know, sometimes one could mumble jumble, but it's actually they should articulate it. The lips should be moving, in other words, clearly defining a word. As they say in Yiddish, nicht chapen verten, nicht einschlingen verten. The Gemara continues, says, Her voice was not heard loud. From here we learn that when somebody is davening, the main part of davening the Shemayin they should not raise their voice. We learn it all from Chana. Eli thinks she's drunk from here. We also learn something. That when somebody is inebriated, they're not in a state of davening. Could somebody say lechaim and then go to daven? 
So from here we learn, you're not allowed to. That's why Eli was upset. All of these halachas about davening are learned from Tfilas Chana. Now this is interesting and also enigmatic and difficult to understand. Chana is not the first person to daven. Chana is not the first person in Tanakh to daven to the Rebbein Yishalayim. Chana lives hundreds of years after the Jewish people reformed. Remember that Chana was the mother of Shmuel Hanavi, the one who coronated both Shaul HaMelech and David HaMelech. David HaMelech lived a few hundred years after the Jewish people entered into Eretz Yisrael because the Beis HaMikdash that was built by David's son was built 440 years after the Jews entered into Eretz Yisrael. That's almost five centuries. That was built by Shlomo. Now this is some decades earlier because Shmuel coronated Shlomo's father David and before that David's father-in-law, the first king, Shaul HaMelech. So Shmuel's mother, Hannah, did not live right in the beginning of Jewish history. She lived already hundreds of years after Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, and even after the Jews going into Eretz Yisrael. In fact, the Torah itself records many tefillos in the genesis of Jewish history by our patriarchs and matriarchs. You would think that that should be the source of Haradavid. And yet the primary source for the most important and fundamental halachas, Hilchus Agavris of Tefillah, come from Chana. We have, for example, in Torah, not only in Navi, not only in Nevi'im, this is in Nevi'im, this is in the Sefer Shmuel. Right in the beginning of Shmuel, Shmuel Aleph, <coughs> in the beginning. But you already have Avram Avinu Davening. You have Yitzchak Avinu Davening. You have Rivka Davening. You have Yaakov Davening. And nonetheless, their tefillahs are not seen as the source of the halachas of davening. We have Avram Avinu davening to Hashem about Zdoim. It's a pretty, pretty fascinating prayer for Zdoim. We have Avram Avinu davening for Avimelech. We have Avram Avinu. Says, the, the Gemara says in Baruchas Chavav, Avram Avinu is the one who instituted tefillah shachras. The whole institution of mourning davening comes from Avram Avinu, the Gemara learns it out from verses in Sefer Bereshis. The same is true with Yitzchak. Chazal say Yitzchak is the one who instituted Tfilas Mincha. Vayetze Yitzchak lasuach basada lefnais arev. Our sages learn out from the Pesukim that he's the one who instituted the afternoon prayer at dusk before sunset. You also have clearly Yitzchak Avinu davening for a child together with his wife. It says that Rivka couldn't have children. Vayetar Yitzchak l'Hashem l'noichach ishto k'yakari. Yitzchak and Rivka were both davening to Hashem because of the infertility. So Yitzchak and Rivka are both davening, and it's clearly articulated in Chumash. Vayetar Yitzchak, and Hashem answered her, and ultimately Rivka would carry a child, and the famous story of the twins, Yaakov and Esav, and so forth. You also have Yaakov davening. Again, the Gemara in Brachas, Chavav learns that Yaakov is the one who instituted Tfilas Arvis, the evening. That means the daily structure of davening that defines Klal Yisrael for thousands of years come not from Chana. Chana davened, but it comes from Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. You would think that would be the source for the halachas of Tfilah. But it's not. It's from Chana. Of course, you have Moshe's Tfilahs in Chumash. Moshe often davens to Hashem. There's a long tefillah after the creation of the golden calf, Yechal Moshe. It's Pnei Hashem a long tefillah of Moshe Rabbeinu. 
asking for forgiveness for the Jewish people, and other tefillahs that Moshe Rabbeinu prays, including tefillahs of the Jewish people, for example, at the Red Sea, Vayitzako al Hashem, they scream to Hashem. The Chumash is filled with individuals, with great people, with men and with women, who are davening. Nonetheless, when Chazal are looking for the source where we learn out the main halachas of davening, it doesn't even come from Chumash. It doesn't come from Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Rivka, Sarah, Rachel, It comes from Nevi'im, from the Sefer Shmuel, and from Chana. One way of looking at it would be, well, Chana's tefillah was unique because Chana was davening for a child. She wasn't just praying for other blessings or other things she needed. She was davening for a child. She asked Hashem, please bless me with Zera with a child, which is obviously one of the greatest, if not the greatest blessings. The Gemara says it's the key that, that lives in Hashem's hands himself. It's one of the keys that he did not give over to a shliach. It's one of the three keys that's he's, him himself, the key of childbirth. So tefillah, we learn from Chana because this is something we daven directly to Hashem. He is the one ultimately responsible completely for a child without any emissaries. Perhaps that's why we choose this tefillah. It's also not just that it's such a fundamental thing and something that is Hashem holds the key to it, but as Rachel told Yaakov, without it, v'im ayin, meisah I feel like I'm, I'm lifeless. That's what Rachel told Yaakov. So this represents how important it is, how, how relevant it is for a person's life. And because the tefillah for children is so fundamental and so powerful and so relevant, maybe that's why they chose the tefillah of Chana. But it doesn't really answer the question because Yitzchak and Rivka daven exactly for the same thing. They couldn't have children, they daven exactly the same thing. And that's early, all the way in Chumash. The second Jew, Yitzchak, the son of Avram Avinu, Rivka, his wife, Rashi says, Vayetar Yitzchak Lashem. Rashi says, Hirba Vihifzer Betfila. Wasn't even a short fila. He and Rivka really engaged excessively in davening, and yet Chana remains the source for prayer. Some might want to say, because the previous fillers will be for Matan Torah. Avram and Yaakov lived before the Torah was given, so perhaps the halachis of Tfilah need to be learned out from somebody who lived after the Torah was given, and that, of course, would be Chana. So that would, might explain Avram and Yaakov, but it wouldn't explain Moshe Rabbeinu, who certainly lived after Matan Torah, and also Davins. Besides the point, we're not looking to these stories to learn out halachas from before Matan Torah, but it's rather what's called a gilui milsa. We see what's the appropriate way of davening. You're not trying to learn out a mitzvah after Matan Torah from before Matan Torah when they didn't have the mitzvah. We're learning from them the proper disposition, the proper characteristics, the appropriate behavior, the appropriate posture. This you can even learn from before the Torah was given, especially that our whole structure of davening three times a day, Shachris, Mincha, might have come from before Matan Torah. They come from Avram, Shachris, Yitzchak, Mincha, and Yaakov, Yaakov, Meirif. So we have to say that there was something about the tefillah of Chana that sets it apart. It puts it in a unique genre, if you wish, even different than the prayers of Yitzchak and Rivka and Avram and Yaakov, Rachel and Moshe Rabbeinu himself. There's something about Chana's davening, which we read on Rosh Hashanah, on the Aftar of Rosh Hashanah, that puts it apart. It's a world apart. And that's why 
It's that story that becomes the source until today for the most fundamental, greatest halachas of how to daven. The explanation of this is to understand for a moment what is davening. What is davening? Well, davening is davening. I mean, what's there to explain? But if we think about it, I often get this question from people. It's interesting. I get emails from a lot of people with questions. So it's a question I get very often from uh, teenage girls. Uh, Interesting. From teenage girls, very often this question. And that is, if Hashem knows everything that He's doing and He's good, so why are you trying to interfere in daven? <laughs> Obviously, it's, it's set up the way it's set up, and there's a reason for it. And He probably knows the reason much better than anybody else. So why are you interfering? As somebody once wrote to me, it seems that tefillah is, represents absolute heresy. In other words, where is the faith? If you believe that God knows what He's doing, so He decided it, so let it be. Why would you want to even change it? And even if you want to change it, who gives you a right and a chutzpah? Where do you get this audacity? What, are you going to change God's mind? Or you think he doesn't know the problem before you spoke about it with him? And if he does know the problem, so now what's going to happen? He's supposed to say, oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You know better. What is this whole idea? What is this whole idea behind tefillah? What does it really mean? What is it about? There's a very interesting argument between the Rambam and the Ramban and other halachic authorities if biblically there's a mitzvah to daven every day or not. The Rambam holds that the mitzvah of tefillah is every single day. Every single day a mitzvah of davening. The rabbis were the one who made times for davening and the text for davening. Shmanesu doesn't come from Chumash, it comes from the Anshei Knesset Sagdoyla. But the fact that there's a mitzvah to daven every day, that the Rambam holds as minatayr. The Ramban and others, say for mitzvahs cotton, the Rajbats, others hold no. The biblical mitzvah of davening is only when a person finds themselves in a unique situation where they really need something special. That's when there's a mitzvah in the Torah to daven. But a regular, a daily routine davening, it's a mitzvah medirabbanon, just like lighting Shabbos candles, just like saying halalan rishchaydah, just like washing our hands before bread. Just like celebrating Yom Tov a second day. These are called mitzvahs midirabbanan. The Rabbanan instituted to daven every day. They gave us a text. The Rambam holds, no, biblically there's a mitzvah to daven every day. But there's no, it could be one minute. It could be 30 seconds. There's no time. It could be in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, in the morning, late. The rabbis gave it a time and a structure and a text. The other priests can say, no, that the mitzvah in our is only... When a person has or something very anxious or something very meaningful to them that they feel that they really need, now it's a mitzvah to daven for Hashem. But it's not part of the regular routine structure in Atayrus. The rabbis who introduced the mitzvah of tefillah. What's the logic behind the second shit to the tefillah? It's not every single day in only when there's a unique situation. There's really two concepts. There's something called bracha and there's something called tefillah. There's a blessing and a prayer. and They're not the same thing. Let's take the story of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu crosses his hands. When Yosef asks Yaakov to bless his children, so Yaakov crosses his hands famously in Parshas Vayichi, puts his right hand on Ephraim, puts his left hand on Menashe, even though naturally his right hand would go to Menashe, because Menashe, Yaakov was sitting, Menashe was on the right, towards Yaakov Avinu would place his right hand on Menashe, because he was the oldest. But he crossed his hands, Ephraim got the right hand, and Menashe got the left hand. So Yosef says, it's 
wrong way. Menashe is the oldest. And Yaakov says, Yadaiti, Bni Yadaiti, I know. But for Ephraim's mission and Ephraim's purpose, he needs this blessing. And Menashe needs the other blessing because Achiv, Menashe is going to be great, but Achiv, Akotin Yigdal Mimenu. So people ask the question, I don't understand. Yaakov could have blessed Menashe to have what Ephraim would have. You're saying that you have to cross the hands because Ephraim needs this blessing. Give the same blessing to Menashe. So Menashe will have what you want Ephraim to have. And then he can get this bracha. Yaakov says, no, so to speak, I'm stuck. Give a bracha, Menashe. Whatever it is that Ephraim needs in order to get your right hand bracha, let that, let Menashe have that. He says, Ephraim is going to be the grandfather of Yeshua bin Nun. He's going to take the Jews and territory Israel. He needs this blessing. Let Menashe's grandchild take in the Jews' territory Israel. Let Yeshua come from Menashe. What's the answer to this? The answer is a bracha doesn't reinvent reality. A bracha tunes in to the pre-existing spiritual source of this person and helps them access it. The word bracha in Hebrew, in Yeshayah, is an expression called brecha. In modern Hebrew, what's a pool? How do you say a pool? A brecha. What's a brecha? That comes from the Tanakh. Brecha means when you have a pool that contains a huge amount of water and from there it can flow into different directions, into different smaller pits, Smaller canals, smaller streams, smaller uh, cisterns, etc. But a brecha is like a place where the water is gathered and centered. That's why a pool of water, where there's a lot of water, they call today a brecha. In, in Mishnah, there's also an expression called hamavrich es hagefen, if you bend a vine, which means if you take part of a vine and you bend it because you want the vine to grow also in another place. So therefore you'll take one branch of the vine and you'll bend it and you'll put it into the earth so now the vine will have a new source. So the idea of bracha is really meloshen hamshacha. Bracha is tuning in to the spiritual source of a person, to their source of water, so to speak, and then helping them access that flow. So if somebody has a bank account and they have money in the bank account, I can help you access that money, retrieve the money fill out the right documents, whatever you need to do to retrieve the money. But I cannot put new money into the bank account or I can't help you retrieve money from somebody else's bank account. Yaakov Avinu says, I'm looking at the soul of Menashe. I'm looking at the soul of Ephraim. This is who Menashe is. This is who Ephraim is. I'm not going to change that. What I'm going to help each one is access their own energy, access their own source. Because sometimes a person without the bracha has tremendous potential, but they have no way of, of retrieving it, of accessing it. So there's a pool of water, but it's not being drawn down. So that's the power of a bracha. That's the power of a blessing. Power of a blessing is to help tune into this person's own source, own makar v'shayrish, their own roots, their own source, and help bring down or bring forth and allow an incessant flow or a stronger flow of your own energy. We all know people have how much, how much percentage of one's brain does one use during their lifetime? <laughs> it's embarrassing when you look it up. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. How much potential of people goes unmet? People are not even aware of it. That's what a bracha is. A bracha is, go, could you, could you access your real source? And when you access your real source, you'll see how much potency there is, how much love, how much energy, how much creativity there is. That's a bracha. So Yaakov can't say, I'm going to give Ephraim's bracha to Menashe. It doesn't work like that. You don't change DNA. A bracha doesn't tamper with DNA. 
Bracha doesn't tamper with your unique DNA access. A bracha helps access what is already yours, but you may not have so much access to it. It may be concealed. There may be blockages. That's a big one. So we try to remove the blockages. That's what a real blessing is. And everybody can give a bracha. Obviously, people who are closer to the source could see behind the blockages a little easier. So therefore, their brachas have a special potency and power. But as the Gemara says, every Jew gives a bracha. It's a powerful tool. Now, you have tefillah. Tefillah is already a whole different concept. Tefillah is much deeper than a bracha. And indeed, tefillah is connected to everybody. A bracha, you say, I'm going to this person for a bracha. Tefillah is related to every single person. The power of davening is, in davening we often have an expression, yihi ratzah. Yihi ratzah, melfonach Hashem What does it really mean, yihi ratzah? May it be the will. May it be the will. Imagine I come to you and I say, I want to ask you that it should be your will. <laughs> it's an interesting way of talking to somebody. Yehi Ratzin, we don't think about this. Yehi Ratzin, sure, why not? Yehi Ratzin becomes a chazanah stickle. But if you think about it, it should be your will. In other words, it's not your will. And I want this should be your will. That's the power of davening. The power of davening is, the Balatanya is an expression that for Shachayim, you create a Ratzin Chodosh. Huh? You should want... You should want to give me ice cream. You should want to take me for slosh. You should want it. Don't do it begrudgingly, right? In other words, a bracha doesn't create something new. It channels from the source what's already a pre-existing treasure, a pre-existing source of water, a brecha. It's opening a pipe, a channel, to be able to access the flow of water. Tefillah is... A rutzin that wasn't there before, a desire that wasn't there before by Hashem. I'm saying, yihi rutzin. There should be a rutzin. Which only intensifies the question. Really? You mean God's wills, you don't like what he wanted, so now we're going to convince him to have a new will, and he's going to say, yeah, you're right. What's, what's, what's takadinian of rutzin? So we're now going to address something that's quite fundamental to Yiddishkeit. And that is, what does the word tefillah mean? Well, we all say it's no brainer. Tefillah means davening. <laughs> but what does davening even mean? It's a Yiddish word, you know. Nobody knows that etymology of it. What does davening mean? Daven, dav. It's it's not so posh. Some people say davening comes from the words. It's like a, it comes originally from the word da'avuhan, because our forefathers, our fathers, avuhan in Aramaic, because Avram Yaakov, so it became davening da'avuhan. Other people give different interpretations, but it's not so clear the word davening. But the word tefillah, vayisfalal, tefillah is a fundamental word and exists in Tanakh as well. What is tefillah? What is it? So one interpretation is, uh, Leah says, Naftule, she names Naftali, Naftali, Naftule, Eloikim, Niftalti, Imachoisi. Also a very complicated word. Rashi gives more than three interpretations what Naftali, Naftule means. One of them is connection. Connection. I'm sorry, I said Leia Bila. Rachel feels she's now more connected to Leia. She has more children. That's one way of looking at it. Tefillah from the word connection. The Mishnah speaks about if earthenware gets shattered and you bring it back together, you, 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 you uh, 
weld it together, you bake it together again so that the pieces, the shards, become reconnected, hatoifled with a tess or with a tuff. But there's another interpretation of tefillin. Of course, it's all connected. Pun intended, it's all connected. Ah? Tefillin is also connected. What's that exactly? So there's an expression that Yosef, Yaakov tells Yosef when he sees him. Yaakov haven't, hasn't seen his son Yosef in 22 years. When he sees him the first time after 22 years, I, I'm sorry, after they meet and he's, he's there together and then he sees his grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim, and he blesses them, mentioned a few moments ago. He tells Yosef before his death, I never imagined to see you again. I thought you were gone. And now I see you and I see your children as well. The word he uses, loy filalti. Filalti in Hebrew means, I didn't imagine. I didn't anticipate. This wasn't part of my imagination. Loy filalti. I couldn't even entertain the thought. It was so far-fetched. It was so remote. That it was not part of my thinking. It was not part of my hopes. Because Yaakov believed that Yosef was devoured by an animal. How is he going to see him again in this world? Loy filalti. Philalti is something imagining. I never imagined. I never looked towards it. I never anticipated it. I never entertained it. Now let's speak. When somebody's saying, I'm going to Davin, we say, Ani halech lehispalel, or lehitpalel, if we need the Sephardic pronunciation. For the Ashkenazim, lehispalel, and for the Sephardim, lehitpalel. But the point is the same. So now, if I want to say, I want to feed my child, or I'm going to, I'm going to feed my, if a person wants to say, I want to go uh, dress my child, what if I say I'm going to get dressed myself? Yeah. I want to give my child a bath, but if I want to bathe myself, so lehit palel is what? It's not you should imagine. Lehit palel, back to that word filalti, is I should imagine. It's my imagination. Lehit palel, just like I'm going lehit labesh, or lehit rachetz, etc. Lehit palel, I'm going to engage in this experience of filalti. Now it's interesting, the person who represents the community by davening is called a chazan. Shliach tzibur. Shliach to the shliach of the tzibur, and the title for him is chazan. So we understand chazan is chazonis, a cantor. But the word chazan comes from the word chazoin, which means vision. Because who is the one who's going to help me? Lehitzpalel, to imagine, for that you need somebody to lead me, to mentor me with chazon, with vision. Like the Pastor says, chazoin yeshayahu. Yeshayahu had a vision. This is about vision. What is the vision that I'm searching for? What is the imagination that I'm searching for? The imagination that one is searching for by davening is, Yaakov says, I couldn't imagine this. What I'm doing by tefillah is, I'm imagining my life the way Hashem imagines my life. I'm trying to align my perspective on my life the way Hashem sees my life. That requires vision. What does this mean? 
Das verstehen in einer Minute. What does this mean? Align my vision. There's the famous expression that Balatanya once said in Yiddish, I'll translate it. Translation, when you look at a Jew, you should see him or her the way they're standing in the primordial thought of the divine. What does this mean? In every person, there's two states. There's who I am. There's who I think I am. What does it mean, who I think I am? Every person has a certain imagination of what their life is, what their life was, what their life ought to be, what their life can be. That's my imagination based on my resources, my tools, my neural pathways, my nature, my genes, my nurture. Every person has the orbit in which we revolve. My past, my present, how I anticipate my future. It comes with gratitude and it comes with disappointments. It comes with anticipation of great things and sometimes anticipation of other things. But every person has their way in which they see their life story, past, present, and future. Tefillah is upending that imagination. It's sublimating that imagination. Can I look at myself and can I see myself for a moment the way Hashem sees me? Because every person, even before they were born, they were conceived, their souls and bodies were conceived in Hashem's mind. What did Hashem see in this person? So the Balatanya said, when you look at somebody, don't just see what you're seeing. Can you see what God saw in them when he decided to create them? He decided to create this person. This person's soul, this person's body, this person's life. But it's enriching when you can do it. I always tell this to teachers, including myself. I said, when you go into a classroom, there's children and you have to see what you see. And you get reports and there's questionnaires and there's diagnosis of everybody, every expert in the world. That's all good. It's all good. Just put in one more diagnosis. One more. In the piece of paper, one more. And that is when God decided to create this child, this little boy, this little girl, or big boy or big girl. Little, with little ones, sometimes it's a little easier. What did Hashem see in this? If I cannot see this or even relate to this, I may not belong standing in front of these people. I have to be able to ask, what did Hashem, Hashem saw something. He decided to create her, not me. He decided to create this child. He saw something. What did he see? You know, when a person builds a company or a website or a movement, before you create it, you, what's your vision? What was your imagination? I want to make $10 billion tomorrow. That's like a good Jewish imagination, very realistic. But everybody, I'm building a shul, I'm building a school, I'm building a home, I'm building a family, I'm building a business, I'm building a corporation, I'm building a movement, I'm building a website. You're imagining something. What, what, what are you seeing in it? You're seeing potential. You're seeing great potential. We have this because Hashem had it. He created somebody also with imagination. Kulam b'chachma asisa. Kaila she'chafetz Hashem asa. As this passage says in Tehillim. Can I tune in to that imagination, to the best of my ability, of course? So the Balatanya said, when you look at a Jew, fabulous words. You have to be able to look at the person the way he or she 
stands in the primordial, primal thought process, kivayachal, of the Rebbeinu Shalom. That's what I want to see. This doesn't mean to deny the facts. On the contrary, it means to align the person down here with who the person really is. What does Hashem see in them? And if I can't see that, I am like missing 99% of the picture. I can have all the earthly diagnosis, but I'm missing the key, the soul. I can only do it with other people if I can do it with myself. With other people, sometimes it's easier if you're a nice person. With yourself, if you have good Jewish guilt, it becomes a little more complicated. Somebody once said, when a Jew doesn't feel guilty, he blames himself. So if if we can get out of that, that's what tefillah really means. It's a very exciting experience. I don't know if the word exciting is the best, but it, that's actually, it, it's, it's, it's a very exciting experience. And what makes it exciting is, it's imagining me, imagining me or imagining you the way Hashem imagines my life. Which means, imagine, if I can hold up a mirror to myself or to somebody else, which reflects back not just what my nose looks like or my eyes look like or my hair looks like or my face looks like, but a mirror that reflects back to me the infinite light that God saw in me and sees in me, creating me then and creating me every moment. It's reflecting back to me not only my ponim, but my pnimius. Not just the external face, but the whole, everything that's inside of me. An x-ray, but not just an x-ray of bones, and not even just an x-ray that shows a cellular level or levels of the genome, but an x-ray that shows back the pnimius of the pnimius, the inner of the inner. Like we say in Ladavid Hashem Ayri, Lecha Marlibi, Bakshu Panoi. To you my heart says, seek my face. What do you mean seek my face, not my back? Bakshu Panoi. Be mevakish. Be mevakish Panoi. Those are the words of David HaMelech. Continues last week's theme of Achaz Sha'alti, Malchus Bakshu Panai. Can you see my Panai? Can I also see my Panai? Tefillah is that mirror. A mirror that I am trying to lift up and look at that will show me and allow me to imagine what my life is, was, could be, will be. From, the, from God's perspective. What does he see as my potential? What does he see as my calling, as my vocation, as my destiny? Does he also see me as a shmata? Does he also see me as a depressed, despondent creature? Does he also see me as an insecure, fearful, traumatized victim? Is that what he saw when he created? He's like, okay, time to create a shmata. And that's really the celebration of a birthday. Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate a birthday of Adam and Chav, which is everybody's birthday in that sense. A birthday is the day that God said, you matter and that the world is incomplete without you. I need you, we need you for your contribution. That is what a birthday is from a Jewish perspective. It's not a day only that deals with one detail or another detail. It's realigning that vision. So let's say I had no fear. Can I imagine my life? What would your life look like if you had no fear? What would it look like? What would my life look like if I didn't have any blockages? Tefillah is the ability to imagine myself 
and see my posture as a says It's a ladder that's etched on the ground. Its top reaches heaven. So I am that ladder. In tefillah, I become a ladder that's etched on the ground, two feet on the ground. But the ladder's head reaches heaven, which means my posture is a continuum of the Adama Elyon Shalakisi of Hashem's posture. So I am completely one with my source. I'm a manifestation of Hashem in this world, but I have to see that ladder, and that ladder got to be straight. That's why it says, by davening we stand. What does Hashem care if I sit? And if you sit? It's not stamp to be matriach somebody. It's because standing really is the physical, is a physical posture when the person's posture is supposed to be erect, not when you know how people sit, then you come to the to the chiropractor and he says, you, you sit by a computer all day, right? That's your problem. <laughs> Nobody used to sit by your computer, you should harvest cotton. Then you also got to bend a little bit. So because of that, when a person, when a person's posture is standing straight, I don't only mean physically, much more than that, I'm talking physically, is also good, also healthy. But I'm talking about emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. The opposite of what the adversary of Yaakov tried to do to him when he maimed Yaakov Avinu. And Yaakov is tzoleyal yurecha. He's limping. We're not just talking about the physical posture. As the Ramban says, we're talking about a spiritual posture. A person who's limping. A person who's caved in. We're not, again, not talking here biologically, physically. We're talking about in terms of my emotional self-perception. For this, you need a chazan. You need a chazoin. I need a person that has to be able to have such a vision. Lehispalel. To be able to imagine my life from Hashem's perspective. To be able to imagine my child's life from that perspective. To be able to imagine the future from that perspective. And when I daven from that space, then, I'm not davening selfishly. I'm actually... As the famous Magid explains, and Afashachayim explains, you daven for the heaviness of the roish, of the head, when you realize that you are the real manifestation of Hashem in this world. So when you're davening for something you need, you're really davening for Hashem's need. Because you're one. You say, come on. I'm davening for cleaning help. God doesn't need cleaning help. I need cleaning help. And I'm saying that you're wrong. Because if you go into most Jews' psyche and you speak to them for a few minutes, you'll see the reason you need cleaning help. <laughs> Should I explain? Better, better, better to stop here. Okay. I'm getting confused with the other tense. People don't know who they are. We often give ourselves bad rap. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. My mother never had cleaning help. Did your mother have cleaning help? It was a machshava zara. Your baba? Cleaning help? Really? You have two bedrooms. There's food in the refrigerator. Who invented this type of spoiled attitude? But the truth is that when you really tune in to yourself by tefillah, you have to know who you are. If you need something, if you need something, if a Jew needs something, whether it's material, emotional, psychological, spiritual. The deepest truth of it is that it's Hashem's need. We see ourselves as separate. And that's what tefillah tries to change. There's me, there's God. God is in heaven, 
I'm on earth, earth, and I desperately turn to you, please. You're big, you're strong, you got the money, you got the cash, you got the creativity, you got the power. Just send a little bit down here. But tefillah is much, much deeper than that. Tefillah is revealing back the connection that you're actually one. I'm not selfish. I'm not detached. I'm not separate. My posture is a manifestation of divine oneness and infinity in this world. A soul is called a chelik eleka mimal mamish. The guf, it says in Zohar, is guf the kadisha. The guf is sacred. When you're praying for the body, you're praying for kadusha. You're praying for your home. You're praying for a Beis Hamikdash. That's Hashem's need. Hashem wants a Beis Hamikdash in this world. You're praying for a child. You're praying for a grandchild. You know, being my child, so I should be able to go to sleep at night. That's a very impoverished way of looking at it. I'm actually praying for Hashem's child. This child is Hashem's light in the world. I have this chus, the privilege, the responsibility to have this child, to have this diamond as a pikadah. Tefillah then is not personal. It's not only personal. It's not, I'm a nebuch case and I need this, I need this, I need that, I need that. It's much deeper than that. Tefillah is actually you're Hashem's mouthpiece. You are Hashem's mouthpiece. Because your needs are His needs. If you have money and you have health and you have a, a clean home, what is that? That's Hashem has a clean presence in this world. There was an avoider to clean up the base of Mikdash. Not something guilty. It's not guilty. One doesn't have to feel guilty about it. The Baal Shem Tev once saw somebody, he was a chazan, talk about a chazan, and he was dancing by al Imagine somebody singing al you know, like, So people wanted to throw him out. It's pasnash. al you cry, you don't sing. They asked the Baal Shem Tev if they should get rid of him. You know, maybe he's a heretic, maybe he doesn't believe in Hashem. So Baal Shem says, I'll speak to him. Shem says, why do you dance and sing by al You're confessing your sins. So he said, this is what he said. He said, a king has a palace. And different people have different jobs in the palace. And each of them celebrate their privilege of working with the king. You have the chef. You have the economy minister. You have Sar Habniya, the, the, the building minister. You have, the, the, you have all the departments of the palace. He says, there's also a janitor. The palace. His job is to sweep up the dirt so that the palace should be splendid. He says, So now I ask you a question. The one who's the janitor, he doesn't sing while he's sweeping. He shouldn't be happy that he gets to clean up the king's palace. He says, I'll hate, I'm cleaning up Hashem's palace. The Shekhinah lives inside of me. But there's a little dirt there. I got to clean it up. I shouldn't sing. I shouldn't dance. The Baal Shem Tev told him, You could leave him. It's the same thing, but he gave perspective, he gave depth, he gave vision. I could start saying al and say, I'm a sick person, I'm guilty, I'm always guilty, I'm evil, I was evil, I will be evil. Please have a little compassion on such a shtick. Whatever it is, you'll finish the sentence on your own. And, uh, and you know, extricate me. I'm in a very, very impoverished perspective state. I'm in, I'm in gullus within gullus. person has to see the truth. I may have made some serious mistakes. I had limited tools. I have my own traumas. 
But what, what I, why I'm calling it a mistake is because it's alien to who I really am. And therefore, I of course celebrate for cleaning up the palace. Vashanti, doesn't say Bisoichoi. So Rabbi Moshe Alshech writes, why Bisoicham? There was one Mikdash, because Bisoicham means within them, within the people. So you're that place. I'm, I'm that space. You're that space. Your home, your kitchen, your living room, your dining room, your family room, your porch is that space. So when a Jew realizes who he or she is, my tefillah is not coming from a place of separateness. You'll see that which you're really focused on by tefillah, that which was really bothering you, if you go a little deeper, you'll see you're actually davening for something that Hashem wants, Hashem needs, Hashem desires. Which goes back to what we discussed two years ago, Rosh Hashanah. Eli was accusing Hannah of being drunk. Drunk on herself. Stop thinking about yourself. Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. Ask not what America can do, what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And Khan explained to Eli something deeper. When I'm asking for a child, it's Hashem. It's part of my dveikus with the Rebbeinah What am I really asking for? Not that Khan is a selfish person. And she's getting jealous of Pnina. Pnina is getting the attention. She's not getting the attention. She's embarrassed to come to a simch. And even if a person is feeling that because of their own blockages, if you go deeper, you'll see what you're really looking for is. You're really looking for Tveikas. You're really looking for oneness. You're really looking to be able to be the person who you are, which is a manifestation of Hashem's infinite light in this world. So tefillah in many ways is a very deep avoid because it's the ability, the courage to transcend my own orbit, my own imagination. For example, I may be stressed about something, overwhelmed, anxious, afraid, scared, angry, jealous, frustrated, annoyed. What's the issue? The issue is right now I'm stuck in a very small orbit of what's supposed to make me happy, what's not supposed to make me happy. So Tfila Chazal says, Mari. says I go away from all my thoughts. What does it mean I go away from all my thoughts? It's a state. This is what it says in Halacha, to go away from all thoughts before davening. It's the real description of mindfulness in the ultimate sense. Can I go away from my expectations and my fears of what my life is supposed to look like and completely align myself with Hashem's vision for my life? Right now, right here, right now. Hashem's vision for my life. I'm transcending my own evaluation of the situation, whatever it looks like. And it's usually an intelligent evaluation, but it's mortal, human, frail, and can be sprinkled with quite a few traumas and fears. And I tune in, I tune in to me, as a manifestation of Hashem in this world. If I can experience that, if I could feel that, what am I asking for? What do I really, really want? What do I really, really need? But this I that I'm talking about is an I that's a mirror of Hashem. Ponem b'ponem, dibra Hashem imachem. That's the philolti, lihispalel. Can you see your day 
Can you see your interactions? Can you see your relationships? Can you even see the conversation you're going to have with your daughter or your son? With your husband, with your wife, with your shvigah, with your shver, with an employer, with a stranger. Can you foresee that conversation? But imagine it the way Hashem imagines it for you. What would that look like? Then I'm emancipated from so many of the pressures and the anxiety that guide it because I'm living in an impoverished orbit. That's lehisfala. That needs chazan. That needs chazoin. Now here something else happens in the equation. And that is, the Pasuk says, Kamayim haponem luponem ken adam adam. The face I show the water, the water reflects back. The heart I display to people comes right back to me. What I show the mirror, the mirror reflects back to me. That's what Shleimah Malach says in Mishle. And we all know, if you're experienced with life, you know how true it is. The energy we the energy we display, the energy we exude, the energy other people get from us, it comes back. You know, sometimes you see somebody, you never met them, you never spoke to them. You just know that you like them. You don't even know why you like them. Now, you may like everybody, but you just like feel this warm feeling. Like they never... But of course, you'll find that one day that they really love you. <laughs> you just, it's just being reflected back. They feel very positively about you. And your heart experiences it, and it just goes right back. <laughs> the energy I give you, I get back. You see, especially with children and parents. Children are the best mirror of the parents' inner moods. When father and mother are in an inner certain state, it's right away, comes right back to them from their kids. You say, yeah, but how does your daughter know? How does my son know? They know everything. They don't have to know. They experience it in their subconscious. That's why people often talk about changing their children. I tell them, no, 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 no. Got to change yourself. Your children will get the memo immediately when you get it. <laughs> we want, I want to send the memo to my kids. I don't want to send it to me. Send the memo to yourself. When you get the memo, read it and internalize it. Trust me, they'll get the memo. Here is something about the Kayach of Tefillah. When a Jew has that ability to say, I'm going to let go of my version of how life looks and is supposed to look like. I'm going to let go of my stress, anxiety, trauma, tension, tension, fears. I'm going to let go of that. And I'm going to say, I'm just Hashem's shliach in this world. I'm not separate. <laughs> I don't have any issues. I'm just a channel. I'm the ladder. I'm the ladder in this world. That's who I really am. In other words, I'm an ambassador of infinity in this world. I have that ability to go out of my machshavas, my ritzainas, my figuring it out, and therefore my being frustrated or so intense with a lot of tension and heaviness, and I let go. I let go because I don't have anything to hold on to. It's Hashem's world. I am His channel. I am Hashem's light in this world. What am I holding on to? The biggest avoid in the world is to let go, not to hold on. Holding on doesn't allow me to have anything because it causes me to limit everything. Here, look. If I go like this, what do I do? Instead of having access to infinity, and I only have access to that which is, you see, if I let go, now I have access to everything. 
if I have to control you, what do I have? I have my little, my little tzatzkas that I have. Like a teacher once told Rothschild, he was a very poor Malama, told Rothschild, if I would have your money, I would be richer than you. Rothschild says how? He says, because I wouldn't quit my teaching job. Right? That's Sagas of a teacher. I grew up in Shul where I grew up, there was a beggar. A very cute guy, his name is Teddy. His name was Teddy. He was a very edel, he would go, and El Teddy, everybody would give him, you just felt like, you know, sometimes people come for it, stuck in, they're like upset at you that you didn't, you know, transfer the deed of your house to them. But Teddy was the opposite. You know, Teddy was an Eid So everybody always gave him. Somebody once saw Teddy, a friend of mine, in a grocery store one block away. He was buying a lottery ticket for 200 million bucks. So he says, Teddy, what are you going to do with the money? He says, the first thing is I'm going to hire bodyguards and put them at all the entrances to the shul so I would be the only one who can go in in the morning to collect the money. That's the first thing I'm going to do when I get the money. Hasagas. But the truth is, isn't this true about everybody's life? Okay, so I have other hasagas for $200 million. I'm not going to hire bodyguards to access, to close all the doors to the shul. But is that also not limit? Everyone has their paradigms. So lehispalel, philolte is, can I let go of all of that? Let go. And imagine myself the way God sees me when he created me as shluchay shaladam kamaisa. I let go of everything. Now you say, that's easy. It's really the easiest thing to do, but it's also the hardest thing to do. It's really the easiest thing to do because it's just, it's natural. Just going back to who you are, just letting go. But letting go, as you know, is the hardest thing to do. Because I feel like I'm going to lose control. I'm going to lose me. The truth is when I let go, for the first time, I'm going to have me. But I'll have the real me, the me without blockages. Uh, uh, uh. Now something very powerful happens. When a Jew goes into that space, you don't stop davening. (laughs) You don't stop davening. Your davening is much more real. Because I'm davening, and I know that what I'm davening for is I'm davening actually for Hashem. Uh, he tells me, uh, he told a story, didn't tell me. He told a story that he went in a few years ago. He went to visit Rav Steinman, Rav Aaron Leib Steinman in Bnei Brak. There was a long line of people, so he waited. Suddenly a fellow comes in, and he skips the line. <laughs> and he goes right in, and they all got upset. You know, when somebody skips the line, they want to scream at him, but he's already in. A few minutes later, he comes out. They want to attack him. So the grandson comes out and says, no, 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 you should just know that he's the doctor of Rav Steinman. <laughs> he didn't come in to ask a question. He came in to see what Rav Steinman needs. <laughs> he didn't come in to ask a question. He came to see what Rav Steinman needs. When a Jew is aligned, you could be asking for everything. But it's a whole different type of tefillah. It's not me, my personal need of somebody who's desperate for something, it's actually, I'm one with Hashem. So if this is a need I have to be able to live and fulfill my mission, whose, needs it, whose need is it really? It's Hashem's need. And here something unique happens. There's a system in the world. We call it nature, Teva. That system was set up by Hashem. The ocean gets vaporized by the sun. It turns into steam and vapor. 
it forms into clouds. When there's enough pressure, the water descends back and comes right back down. But if that would happen, the whole earth would be desert. So Hashem also put in winds. So the winds scatter the clouds. So now when the water falls, it doesn't fall back into the oceans and the seas and the ponds and the lakes and the rivers. It irrigates the soil. And we have a living planet that can sustain biological life on the planet. That's all incredible. Every detail of Teva, this physical nature, the spiritual nature. When things are happening in the world, it's part of a vast eternal grand plan of the divine that certainly defies any human imagination, just as we don't know how the world was created, how it runs, the mysteries of creation. This is where the power of tefillah is. There's a structure, there's the way the world runs. But Hashem is not defined by structure. Hashem is the author of structure. He transcends the structure. So imagine, Tati and Mami have certain rules in the house. And those rules are important because a house needs structure. But if Tati and Mami become a piece of structure, then we have a problematic house. Or as Churchill once said, we create institutions to facilitate our visions and then we become prisoners of those institutions that we create. Structure is a tool, you don't worship it. Structure is very important. They say two people fail, those who don't have a plan and those who stick to their plan. So there's a plan, there's a structure. In tefillah, a Jew says, I'm yours. I go out of all my structures. You know what happens? Hashem does the same thing. He also goes out kevayachal of his structure. There's a structure, it's a divine structure. It's called teva, spiritual teva. And a new rotsin is created. This rotsin. This rotsin that you're asking for, that's the power of tefillah. So it's infinitely greater than bracha. Bracha tunes into what is. Tefillah goes into the source of infinity that transcends every structure and something completely unprecedented and new can happen. And that's why it's kamayim aponim laponim kein leva adam ela adam. That's that power of prayer. So you have that child who comes working and there's a structure situation. Child doesn't live up to that structure. So the boss says, okay, you don't live up to the structure, leave the company. There's only one catch. The boss is his father. So at some point you look at your parent and you says, can we forget structure for a moment? And have a, I want a relationship with your essence. Davening tunes into Hashem's essence, which transcends all structures, even spiritual good, holy structures. I'm not talking about bad structures. It's God's structures. There's a system in the world. There's science, there's physics, there's spiritual science and physics. There's chemistry and the spiritual chemistry, and they're all interconnected. But there's the author beyond the chemistry. When I can go out of my chemistry, when I can go out of my orbit, of my separateness, and tune in to the source of all, and see myself as one with that, Kevayachel Hashem Oso transcends his previous Ratzon, which was based on the plan, this is what this person is going through, this is what this person needs, this is this journey, that journey. And a whole new reality is created because the Jew said, this is your need, this is your real need. I'm representing you in this world and I'm telling you, this is what's needed. That's the unprecedented power of Lehispalel of Tefillah. That's why some opinions say the real mitzvah of Tefillah is not every day. 
It's when there's something unique. When you need a serious change, because that's really the essence of Philly, even though the Rambam and many Allahic authorities say, no, Tefillah is every single day. And that's why within Tefillah itself, the prayer of Rifka, Yitzchak, Chana, Rachel, Sarah, and similar people throughout history, to be able to have a child, that prayer is really embodies the core of Tefillah, because it's not just it should rain. Rain is a great blessing, but it's part of the science of the universe. But if somebody was infertile, to have a child, something has to be transformed in nature. This is where you really see the kayak of tefillah. But with Chana, you see it even more than anybody else because of one reason. There is the science of nature and there is the science of Judaism. Science of nature is certain people are biologically fertile, certain people are not. It says about Rivka and Sarah that their physical situation was, or Apiteva was impossible. So there was tefillah and it happened. But then there's something even deeper. And that's the science of Torah. The Gemara says in Meseches Nida that before a child is born, yeah, the Malach said, they asked the Malach, this tipa, this, uh, this uh, embryo, should it be weak? Should it be strong? Should it be wise? Should it be not so wise? Wealthy, poor, everything is established. Besides one thing, tzaddik virasha like Amar. That God says, I don't get involved in that. Hakel bidei shamayim, Amar Abchanan, hakel bidei shamayim, chutzmi yirishamayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven besides yirishamayim, fear of heaven. The Rambam says in Hilchus Tshuva that free choice is the foundation of Torah mitzvah. Comes Chana, and she davens for something very unique. She doesn't say, I want a child. Rivka wanted a child. Yitzchak wanted a child. Chizkiah had a child. Menasha. Chana says, She asked for a child, as Chazal say, Anoshim means tzaddikim. A child like Moshe and Aaron. And she says, I'm going to dedicate him to Hashem all the days of my life. All the days of his life. How do you know he's going to agree, Rebetz and Chana? <laughs> Maybe he's going to grow up and say, Mommy, you're a nice lady. But you can't control my life, right? What do they say? You can't control my life. You mean well. I'm going to support you, mommy. But I'm not going there. She makes a promise. She makes a vow to Hashem. She asks for a tzaddik like Moshe and Aaron. And you know what? She gets it. She gets it. And she gets it because of her tefillah. Chazal even say that she made a connected that he's going to be a nazir. And he became a Nazi. He had to accept it upon himself. Chana's tefillah was one that was so powerful because it defied not only the science of the universe, it defied even the science with which the Rebbeinu Shalom created the system of Yiddishkeit. And that is everybody has choices. They're going to have to make their own choices. They're going to have to make their own mistakes. And they're going to choose it. But Chana's tefillah went into a place that completely transcended any structure, any format of what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be, even from a religious and spiritual point of view, straight to the essence that transcends everything, and her tefillah happened. Nothing underscores the power of davening, therefore, like Hannah's davening. Even the Avais and the Emois and Moshe didn't daven for such a thing. For a child, 
who's going to be a Moshe and an Aaron and a Tzaddik and dedicate promising, he's going to be dedicated to Hashem all the days of his life. And that's why most of the halachas of Kavana we learn out from Chana's davening. Because this is not about the words of davening. It's the kavana. What's kavana of davening? The mindfulness. The ability to suspend all my thoughts. And all my drama. And all my evaluations. And completely allow myself to be subsumed in the infinite. And to really see myself as that person. And when you do this, you see it's not so hard to do. Initially it's hard because we're tense. But really you do it again and again and, and the brain opens up. The brain really opens up because this is the most natural thing for a person to do. In that state of kavana, the person goes beyond nature, beyond my tension, beyond my stress, beyond my orbit, beyond my evaluations. I climb that ladder above and above and above until I can melt away in the ecstasy and oneness of infinity, ain't so if and see myself as that person. And when I'm davening, what am I davening for? You're then davening not for a selfish, separate person's needs. For a person's needs, but a person who represents Hashem in this world, so it's Hashem's needs. Then you skip all the lines. Whoops. Then one skips the lines. And when one skips those lines, the response is that Hashem Kivayachal goes beyond all his ritzoyness and Yehi Ratzon, Anu Ratzon. And that's why Tfilah's Chana is read in Rosh Hashanah. The Shalad, the Chsam Sofer, the Pnei Yeshua say that Tfilah of Chana happened in Rosh Hashanah. Because really, it captures the essence of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, Chazal says, Hashem says, coronate me as a king. Most of the Tfilah's of Rosh Hashanah, we coronate Hashem as a king constantly. Why does he have to be coronated as a king? And if I don't coronate him, he's not going to be a king. If I don't scream, Yechi HaMelech, Hashem, Hashem is the king, HaMelech, Yoshev Al-Kisiram Venisa. HaMelech, he's not going to be a king. What is this even idea of coronating Hashem as a king? <clears throat> so one of the explanations is, it's a very profound explanation is, that Hashem Kivayachal on his own, is completely beyond even the concept of malucha, even the concept of kingship. Because what does kingship really mean? Kingship means, I'm in a relationship. I'm a king of the people. I'm defined as a leader. It's, it's, it's a very deep relationship. It's not just a small relationship, it defines the people, it defines the king. A real king, a real melech, like Moshe Rabbeinu, by Hebrew, sure the melech is now dedicated heart and soul to the people. So it's a tremendous commitment, it's a tremendous sense of attachment. And when a person thinks about that, what does that really mean? If Hashem is pure infinity, if Hashem is enoid mulvadoi, so the concept that Hashem is a king, Hashem creates a world, He's in a relationship with a world, that's extremely unnatural for infinity. Infinity means it's the only thing around, there's nothing else. Ein Saif means... This is limitless. This is endless. There's absolutely nothing else. So imagine even by people. If you have a leader who's very self-confident, has a very successful life, and he or she really does not need the leadership for validation. I don't need you to elect me. I don't need to become your mayor, your governor, your president. It's a headache. I'm happy to retreat into my own life. 
such a leader, how do you convince them to come out of their bubble? It's not easy. Why should I condense myself and go into a life which is extremely pressuresome? Now think about this infinitely more. The whole concept of Hashem as a boire, as a creator, is a revolution. It's a chiddush. God transcends even being a creator, because being a creator means I'm creating a world, I'm busy with the world, I'm concerned with the world. Where does that come to infinity? I mean, we appreciate it because we're here because of that. But naturally, the concept of Hashem being a melech is a chiddush. It's a revolution. It's not the natural thing to do. Why should I get involved in this? Especially this world is not such an easy place to run. And not just Afghanistan. It's a complicated place. What's the Kiddush of Rosh Hashanah? The Kiddush of Rosh Hashanah is, this is what happens. That a Jew reaches in to the essence of Hashem because of the relationship. And that Kivayachal, it triggers and it arouses in Hashem to transcend his own natural reality and say, yes, I'm in the relationship. Imagine somebody who by nature... They're more themselves. They like to be themselves. And that's where their comfort zone is. What can bring me out of that space? What can bring me out of that space is, that's the power of love. When I could see the trust, when I could see the loyalty, when I could see the connection and I could trust it, that touches a person in the deepest space. Yes, we retreat because we're afraid, we're insecure, we don't want to get hurt. But when a person can trust the relationship... There is nothing deeper. Why is that? Because it's by Hashem also like that. Hashem's natural phenomenon is infinity. There's nothing else. Why should we leave that space? Why should he leave that space? But when the Jew coronates Hashem, says, I want to be with you. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm here. I'm yours. You're mine, then I'm yours. If you're mine, then I'm yours. So that's the, the, the whole idea of Chana's tefillah, what tefillah represents, that's embodied Rosh Hashanah. That's the whole Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah is that day when the Jew transcends everything and says, who am I? I'm you. I'm your shliach in this world. So Hashem says, you know who I am? I'm not this infinite, omnipotent God who's forever aloof. I'm yours. That's what coronation is. That's the koyach of what happens. That's why the tefillah of Chana is read on Rosh Hashanah. And that's the reason why Rosh Hashanah is Yom Haddin. We, we usually think as day of judgment is, you're sitting here, you go into the courtroom, and the judge sits with a hammer, and he says, you, okay, you're getting this, you're getting this, you're getting this, you're getting this. Balatanya says that Rosh Hashanah, Yom Haddin is a much deeper concept. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Haddin is... How it's the din, this is what he says. So Yoim Adin, because what's, what, what, what's really happening on Rosh Hashanah? What's really happening on Rosh Hashanah is, a Jew tells God, listen, I'm you. You're me, I'm you. So who are you really judging? You're judging me. You're judging you. <laughs> You'll judge you. You're judging what's the best thing for you this year in the world. So he says, as Father Balatani says, so what's the Yoim Adin? The Yoim Adin is, the din based on my maizim of last year, how much will I be able to experience this flow? How much will I really be able to experience that it's Hashem judging Himself and I'm the channel through which it's all happening? In other words, the Yom Adin is a din for Hashem Himself because a Jew is one with Hashem. So now let's get this, let's, we're just working together. 
What's the judgment? The judgment is, will I be transparent enough to be able to experience this flow throughout the whole year? To be able to actually know and realize that what's happening essentially is happening to you through me. Will I be able to be aware of how plugged in I am when I'm not? That already depends on me. Because if I want to be plugged into this, I need to remove all the blockages for me to be able to experience myself in that place of oneness. That's the ultimate Yoyim Hadin. The ultimate Yoyim Hadin is, will I be able to open myself up to this truth that's happening, that everything that's going to happen the next year is essentially Hashem causing Himself to experience through me who is his man in this world, or his woman in this world, or his soul in this world? I'm saying his. It could be her. It. I don't mean his versus Shechina's feminine. Just don't. It's not so easy to use the right term. So I'm saying his. That's the classical term. But don't get confused with that. And when a, when a person realizes this, so then every day when I wake up in the morning, what is at store today is basically me fulfilling this mission of Hashem. Me fulfilling and being a process and a channel and a conduit for this infinite light, fulfilling this will, which is his deepest will beyond structure, which is my deepest will, because we're one. And I'm the one who was sent from him to be able to achieve this and to create this in our world. Have a wonderful day, a wonderful week. A good geben shyar, a sukkah, to you, to all of your families. All of our families, but Yisrael, a year in which uh, all of your hearts, which is God's heart, <laughs> is fulfilled. Next week, obviously, there won't be a class. It's Rosh Hashanah, but the week after, we will once again meet. That's two days before Yom Kippur, right here, twelve forty-five. This class is brought to you by the Yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.